Happy Independence Day, or as I prefer to call it, Interdependence Day. This is Ed Fallon. I'm your host on the Fallon Forum, and we're bringing you progressive voices and civil dialogue from across the political divide. Before I tell you about today's program, I want to thank our anchor small business partner here in the Des Moines metro. That would be Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Uh, Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. You can order groceries online. And Gateway also offers catering and floral services. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. As you've heard me tell you before, folks, this program is pretty unique. And as I like to say, if you want to make Sean Hannity, he's my uh, alter ego among Irish Americans, if you want to make Sean Hannity quiver in his pricey swivel chair, and yes, go online, they are pricey, become a sponsor of this program. Support the Fallon Forum or a similar program on community-owned stations. But, you know, there aren't a lot of us. Uh, but we sure could use, uh, we, we'd love to have people talk about their small business, their nonprofit, uh, help with a monthly donation. We, we, all that stuff helps make us keep moving forward. And, you know, we're going to keep expressing, expressing the viewpoints you won't hear on the big stations owned by iHeart, Sinclair, Cumulus, those companies. And they've got their corporate sponsors. We've got you. We've got small businesses. We've got local nonprofits that help make the difference. So, hey, folks, uh, do what you can to support what we're trying to do and what other folks are trying to do. It's a tough universe out there in the radio realm. Okay, so later in the program, we're going to be talking with Mark Klipsham and answering the question about what's really threatening our way of life. You hear that all the time. We can't do that. It would threaten our way of life. We're going to talk about that. What really is threatening our way of life? And is our way of life, in fact, actually threatening us? We're also going to be talking with Pasha Morgan about uh, the, uh, this has been happening around the country here in Iowa. The legislature passed and the governor signed a bill that prevents teachers and schools from teaching uh, something they call the divisive concept of uh, of uh, racial equality. I'm just going to call it racial equality. They're, they don't like racial equality. We're going to talk about that. I also want to talk to you later on the program about Interdependence Day, what I, what I mean by that. And then we'll have Kathy Burns join us for a conversation about how to plan now for a fall garden. But first, in our climate update segment, I want to talk first about drought and wildfires. Uh, well, you know, I think it's pretty clear now, everybody in the U.S. is aware that we have a huge drought problem going on, and verifying that reality are old trees. And I, you know, I am not a scientist, but I respect science. I don't know how they do this, but apparently you can, you can look at tree rings and tell just how moist the soil was in years past, and based on that, you can figure out what kind of a drought you're having. And apparently the current drought is a once in every 1,000 years. Let that, let that sink in. The last time we probably experienced this kind of a drought in this part of the world was about 1,000 years ago. And, you know, there's, there's no doubt in anyone's mind who's paying attention that this is related to the climate emergency. So... And as a result of the, of the drought, which, you know, if you look, go, you go, go online, folks. Check out the Drought Monitor website that the, I think it's the University of Nebraska at Lincoln publishes. It's very well done. And uh, 
if you it shows you the current level of drought in various various uh, various um, levels, I should say, uh, from abnormally dry to uh, extreme drought, and it shows you the current assessment last week, three months ago, a year ago, and if you look at all those metrics, uh, nearly everything is up. It's drier. Um, the uh, it's more it's more abnormally dry. The moderate drought is worse. Uh, the extreme drought, the severe drought, all those things are worse. This is not going to get better. It's also not just the great out, out, it's not just the West. It's also North Dakota is pretty severe. Even in Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, the, the northern tier states are experiencing uh, certain levels of drought and dryness, but nothing like out West. Out West, it is really, really bad. And of course, um, you can't live without water. We'll see what happens to the water supply in the reservoirs in the Colorado River elsewhere. Uh, you also, um, what you, the other thing you can expect with dry conditions like this are increased fires. Yeah, and, you know, and, and the national, the mainstream media is starting to report on this. Maybe, maybe they'll um, treat it with as much seriousness as they treated the coronavirus crisis. This from ABC. Quote, the mega drought that's plaguing much of the western U.S. is a direct consequence of warming global temperatures. They're saying it. And uh, maybe more and more people will start figuring it out and start doing something about it quickly. So, uh, and again, if you look at the fire situation, it's, um, there, there's, there, there's no, there, there's a connection. It's, it's not, this is not a hard connection to draw, too. Now, again, I'm looking at data from a couple of weeks ago, but the fires in Arizona, uh, just, just looking at Arizona, uh, that telegraph fire is, I believe, as of, as of two weeks ago, maybe it may be worse now, was recorded as the sixth worst fire in the state's history. And at the same time, there are several other fires burning in Arizona. And again, we are barely at the beginning of what's called fire season. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not a good situation. Action needs to be taken, and uh, there is action being taken. Apparently, the G7 summit met recently. That's with the, uh, the leaders of the U.S., uh, Great Britain, Canada, France, Italy, Japan, Germany, uh, all got together, and uh, among other things, they pledged to collectively cut in half the, their, each country's um, greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, they were going to cut it in half by 2030. That's the plan. Cut it in half within the next nine years and to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Again, we'll have to have another conversation about what net zero really means. But um, for now, okay, that's good, that, that's, that's good um, uh, rhetoric. <laughs> they also uh, agreed to um, no longer allow uh, coal projects coal, um, new coal-fired power plants to be financed. Uh, uh, and they also put together or pledged a $40 trillion global green infrastructure plan. That's, um, that's pretty much uh, modeled after President Biden's climate plan. Okay, so that all sounds great, uh, but is it enough? No, not even close. Uh, the, um, the problem is, of course, is we've got a lot... You, the so-called developing world, and we need to have a conversation about the words developing world, because, well, you know, we can get into that. Maybe Mark Klipsham and I will get into that a bit, because 
this whole concept of the developing world versus the developed world or even the underdeveloped world, it, it's, the, it's an entirely wrong paradigm. But we know what they mean. They mean mostly countries that are in the southern half of the, uh, of the, of, of the world. Uh, and, and so these so-called developing countries um, also have to end their dependence upon oil, gas, coal. They got to do it as soon as possible. We know that. Science says that. But it's not going to happen. Analysts, including uh, leadership at the UN, say it's not going to happen if the big countries do not help out. And this has been a sticking point. And this was a problem I ran into when talking with my Trump voter guests uh, during this program earlier this year. Well, yeah, we know that climate change is a problem. We know the U.S. has to do something. But these other countries have to step forward and do their part. Well, the problem is it's the rich countries of the world like the U.S., okay, especially the U.S., that have overwhelmingly uh, caused the climate crisis. And yet it's the poorer countries, and especially the poor in the poor countries, or even the poor in our own country, who are disproportionately affected by climate change. So, yeah, the the G7 countries are saying, yeah, we're going to help out. We're going to put some money into this. But what really is happening? You know, they here's a, here's a great dodge, okay? <laughs> this is from The Guardian, my favorite newspaper, uh, who have, um, and I'll just quote, The Guardian writes, uh, repeating a long-standing dodge by rich countries, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson tried to obscure the climate finance shortfall by portraying already allocated aid as new, additional aid. (laughs) Okay, that's like saying, I'm going to make this commitment to give you all this money to help fix a problem that I caused. And I'm also going to count all the money I gave you 10 years ago (laughs) to help fix that problem. There... um, that's not even that clever. I mean, come on, Mr. Johnson, you can do better than that. Uh, so uh, back to the Guardian story, and again, I quote, the summit communique offered only these tepid words. We welcome the commitments already made by some of the G7 to increase climate finance and look forward to new commitments from others well ahead of November's COP26. All right, that's, if that's not politically nuanced, I don't know what is. It says nothing, really. It just says, thank you for doing all you can, even though they haven't done much and may not do much at all. So the, um, the uh, climate minister from Pakistan really hit the nail on the head. He says, uh, he says um, quote, the G7 announcement on climate finance is really peanuts in the face of an ex- existential catastrophe. It really comes as a huge disappointment for impacted and vulnerable countries like Pakistan. Okay, so good, good. That's, that's um, again, the G7 did something. We recognize that. They did way too little. That is pretty clear. And we got to make sure we hold them accountable and hold the media accountable. The media need to make sure that they don't try to dodge the real issue about uh, stepping forward in a big way, not just to cut their own emissions, but to help these smaller, struggling, even the emerging larger democracies like India, they need, they need help to address a problem that, for the most part, they weren't as responsible to cause. Anyway, we'll see where that goes. Um, in the meantime, we're going to come back from a short break here, and Mark Klipschman is going to join us. We're going to be talking about how our way of life is threatened. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, 
artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Hey folks, welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, happy Independence Day week, or maybe Interdependence Day week. And uh, thanks to the local businesses and nonprofits who make this program possible. Thank you to Bold Iowa, building rural-urban coalitions to address climate change and prevent the abuse of eminent domain to build pipelines. You can learn more at boldiowa.com. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, offering classes on how to turn your yard into dinner. Get information about classes and workshops at birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. I would like to welcome Mark Klipsham to the program. Among other hats he wears, he is the Dream Doctor. Mark has a program on KHOI 89.1 FM in Ames called Music Rare and Well Done. You can hear that show every Tuesday night at 10 p.m. and uh, you know, ease yourself into a nice sleep. Mark, do I have that right? No, uh, move some furniture out of the way because you're going to probably want to dance. Oh, <laughs> okay. Noted. Every, everything on it from soup to nuts. Uh, my criteria is well-composed and well-crafted. And beyond that, it's it's all fair game. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so um, this is uh, Independence Day week. I, I, let's, let's give it a whole week. And... Um, you know, I, I want to talk more later in the program about my impressions of Interdependence Day. But, you know, it's Independence Day is kind of a celebration of the American way of life. And we often hear about things that threaten our way of life. And uh, I know you've done some deep thinking about this, this challenge. <laughs> and I, let me just punt it to you right there, Mark. Uh, Independence Day, our, our way of life being threatened, what do we really need to be thinking about in that context? Well, we, we call it the good life. And I think as many things start out as a, as a great thing, we gained independence from an authoritarian country that was dominating over us, and we became independent. And yet I look around today and I can't believe how incredibly dependent we are on this great gray machine. If we pulled the plug tomorrow, cut the supply chain, we saw a little, little inkling of it in the pandemic. Wow. What happens in a week, you know, New York city, LA, let alone Des Moines, you know, it's like, I have to have a car. I have a grocery store. I've got water coming out of a tap. I've got things I plug in. I got a cell phone. I don't think I could be more dependent. Right. 
Well, it, but I like the opportunity. You know, isn't that part of the problem? Is that it's been set up this way so that we have to be dependent upon all these, all these uh, features? And uh, I mean, you, you can't even some places you can't even use cash anymore to make a purchase. You have to be dependent upon your credit card, dependent upon a company that owns that credit card that takes a that, that makes profit off of you having to use it. You know. Little things like that that really add up. Dependent upon a computer, you're, you 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 want you want to um, you want to you you want to file a certain claim or something. You got to do it online. I mean, I know what you're saying, but is there any way around it? Is there any way out of it? And really, and it makes the bigger question is how much does it really matter? As I'm, I'm I'm an unwilling participant to a point. I have my own garden, as do you. But that certainly doesn't give me the kind of independence I need. I and and I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm more of an observer. We are taught. We have been dumbed down. We're we're not taught about history. We're not taught taught about being independent. How do you be independent? You know, you live in, I don't, but most people live in a subdivision or somewhere that's hooked into a city. Uh, everything's regulated. There, there's not incentive or encouragement to be independent because our whole society, we've hit on this before, is based on consumerism. So I think we talked about it. You're not necessarily addicted to it as opposed to there's really not another option. And I think, Mark, my, my impression is uh, you're, not, you're not really talking about people going off and living in their own private cave. Uh, you, you, just, you would like to see people, I think, more interconnected as well, more communally connected, um, not so connected on these huge technical, technological forces that are very distant from where you live and, and you know, wh wh where your experiences are. Uh, I mean, there's... I think there's a lot of wisdom myself in the native vision of how people relate to each other communally and how they relate to the land. And we're hearing more about that, and that's encouraging to me. Well, the word is centralization. Uh, could you have imagined an indigenous society that depended upon <laughs> getting their cornmeal from 800 miles away from someone dragging it on the back of a horse? Excuse me, when they finally had horses you know, with a couple sticks, like, no, it, it had to be there. And you had to understand your environment. You didn't plug in and shut everything off. You're part of it. You're integrated with it. And yet, well, I, on the one hand, it was an understanding more than a dependence that, that made you independent because you were knowledgeable as opposed to, say, believing in something, you understood it and how it worked. You for lack of a better way, you would talk to it. And yet, you know, we, meaning the U.S. government, the Canadian government, and anybody who has been complicit in, in those uh, operations, <laughs> uh, you know, have been, uh, have for, for, for decades, for a couple hundred years now, been trying to do everything possible to stifle the um, native vision, the native reality, native people themselves. I mean, we saw the horrific incident uh, that came to light in Canada a few weeks ago with the uh, discovery of all the children who had been uh, killed and buried there. Yeah, the, the obsession. It, it, without oversight and a community, egalitarian societies are very much like that, you can get away with just about anything. You can call white, black, and you know, up, down, and whatever. 
when people are a little closer, once again, decentralized where it's local. And I, <laughs> I love the, the thought of an egalitarian society. So you have this egomaniac who's, you know, controlling everything and you go out for a hunting expedition and, and well, funny, nobody even asked what happened to Bob because everybody knew what happened to Bob. Bob didn't fit. <laughs> Bob was a problem. <laughs> he wanted to exert his authority upon everybody else without actually having the moral or ethical basis to do that. It's just because they were so obsessed with them having their way at other people's expense and or the environment and I'm, that it became a problem, a huge problem. I'm not sure I know Bob. I'm not sure I want to, but... Uh, <laughs> Bob, Bob's uh, gone, Ed. Okay, he's gone. <laughs> but uh, I want to get back to the, uh, the notion that... Um, that uh, part of what inspires people to think great thoughts about, you know, about their community. And, and, and a lot of that is very good. I mean, I, I respect a lot of the uh, kind of the, the, um, the, the, the collective pride that comes along with Independence Day. But uh, there's this notion that certain things are, quote, threatening our way of life. Uh, they could be foreign forces. Uh, even when, when you talk about taking action to address climate change, people say, well, you know, that threatens my way of life. And uh, my thought is, well, when it comes to addressing climate change, yeah, it, it's threatening. You say it's threatening our way of life, but really it's our, our, our way of life is what's threatening our way of life. We have to change dramatically. That's why I think some of the more, um, you know, the, 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 the cultures that were here before have so much to teach us about how to do that, how to live without having your way of life threaten your way of life. I say, we're, we're, our society is a snake eating its own tail where we're cutting off the branch we're, we're sitting on. Uh, I, I see, and we've touched on this a little bit before too, you know, it's like this new community has been developed. All I see is asphalt paving and mowed lawns and boxes plugged into something far far away and the people don't know each other i don't know how that's a community and and the goods that are produced are from another country halfway across the world and they're ground up and thrown into a landfill which we can't see conveniently uh it's so, not sustainable it's not healthy it's not people are not happy it's, it's so what's, maybe. what's the way out of it what's the way out of the problem Rule number one of everything, you have to acknowledge there's a problem. And right now I'm hearing, oh, the problem is that it's brown and we need to make it green. Well, that's still a problem. Now it's a green problem rather than a brown problem. Now we're using, you know, solar energy to grind up the earth and throw it into landfills. We don't need all this. It is fat. It is excess. It is unhealthy mentally and physically, uh, spiritually. Yeah. I, I, ironically, Ed, I have proposed developments for communities, affordable, green, eco-communities, and they are not allowed by law, by zoning, anything else. Like, oh, no, we don't want that. The streets have to go through for community. It's like, no, that destroys communities. Once again, black is white, up is down. And I, I hear there's a you know a planning department in these cities. Like, like, where did they take their planning instruction from because it's not the places i go that i love you know it's 
It's like a developer's dream or something. <laughs> yeah, or a, a, a dream for a, a dream that becomes a nightmare for many of us. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a it's a problem we could talk about for a long time, Mark. I've got to run to a break. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, let, let's um let's continue this conversation at some point. Um, folks, we've been talking with Mark Clipsham. You can check out his uh, program, his music program. He um. He kind of saves these conversations for, for me, I believe. Uh, <laughs> but on Tuesday at 10 p.m. on KHUI, you'll hear him with his music rare and well-done program, a good show, The Dream Doctor. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. People, educate yourself beyond what people hand you. Best wishes to everyone. All right. When we come back, folks, Pasha Morgan is going to join me. We're going to be talking about... Uh, what it means to have divisive concepts, I'm putting that in quotes, taught in our schools, and uh, what uh, certain states, including Iowa, are trying to do to, to kind of, you know, to, to stifle the conversation about systemic racism. Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Groovy Goods is your Des Moines one-stop hippie shop. Located near Drake University, we are more than just a store. Groovy Goods is about community. We're a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. You will be greeted by friendly staff, the smell of incense, the vibration of healing stones and crystals, the vibrant colors of clothing and tapestries, and an extensive herbal apothecary and metaphysical products. At Groovy Goods, everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Check us out online, groovy-goods.com, or stop in at the corner of 23rd and University in Des Moines. At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services, including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here. Thanks to our local business partners, including Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years. You can learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page or by giving Dr. Holding a call at 515-232-8766. Thanks also to Westrom Optometry. Located in Des Moines East Village, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in both English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry. Well, I'd like to welcome to the program Pasha Morgan. Pasha, good to see you again. Good to see you. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, but we're doing this in person. This is kind of a nice break, isn't it? A nice change of pace. To actually be face to face with people? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we have, uh, there's, there's always so many things to get uh, on one's high horse about. And most recently, uh, I, you know, we, we've seen this legislation passed by the Iowa State House and signed by the governor uh, preventing instructors in the Iowa public school system from teaching what's called critical race theory. And it has come with a, a pretty broad criticism and uh, I don't even know where to start with it, so I, I turn to you. <laughs> where do we start with our conversation about 
how the state has labeled critical race theory divisive, a divisive concept that must not be taught in the schools? Oh, let's see. Where do we start? Um, well, I mean, let's start with the fact that we shouldn't be surprised. All right. The okay, whole point fair enough. of critical race theory is to teach how the separation of race or and how the ramifications of that have um, have or I'm sorry, to teach how race in our country has had critical implications throughout history. Right. From the very beginning until right now. How do you deny that? Oh, a lot. <laughs> like, there, I mean, uh, people deny it all the time. Like, I get a lot of responses to things I say like, well, I can't help what my ancestors did to your ancestors. A lot of white people in America, which is why CRT, critical race theory, is important to teach, a lot of white people in America are somehow under the assumption that what black people and people of color uh, are talking, black people, indigenous people, and people of color in America are talking about is some kind of historical something that happened instead of things that, and oppression that we're dealing with every single day in America. So that is the point of critical race theory. But I think a lot of people understand and kind of have understood from the very beginning that white supremacy has been, it was our country was founded on white supremacy. And it is not gonna go gently into that good night. And this is just another yeah. example of that. It's not, it's, it's teaching how, we don't wanna teach this because if we teach it, then we have to acknowledge the fact that, that what happened hundreds of years ago is not over and it's still affecting people today. And that's not something that people are willing to do. People don't like to take responsibility and culpability. So, yeah, it's hard to understand the arguments against teaching the impact that that uh, that 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 systemic racism has had on our country and continues to have. One of the uh, one of the excuses I hear for people who think we don't need to have those conversations is, well, we elected a black president. We've gone as far as we need to go. <laughs> you hear that from some people. I hear that from thousands and thousands okay. and thousands of people, literally every week. Mm. And, and, and how do you respond? I don't. <laughs> I, I really don't. It's ridiculous. Mm. It's ridiculous to, to look in a history book and start with the first president and go, White, 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 44 times. Male, male. 43 male, times. Male, and male. then say, right. And <laughs> then say, oh, he was black. Oh, we're good. White, white. That makes no sense. Yeah. That it just doesn't, it's not even critical thinking. So I just don't well, even babe, pay attention. I mean, to it, it. it does say something that America finally got to the point where uh, a majority of us were comfortable voting for a black president. That was really cool. And, and, and then somehow that becomes the excuse to ignore all the other things that are happening, all the other things that are wrong. I guess it depends on how you look at that. Because if you look at it like, oh, we finally got to the point where America elected a black president, so we're progressing. But that's not how I see it. What I, how I see it when I look at that is it took America this long to elect one black guy. And then it's been two white guys since then. So it's not, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't seem like progression. It seems like um, placation. Okay. You also have to look at the black guy. Right. Like, you have to look. This is who America 
when America finally elected a black guy, number one, he was half white. Number two, he had to be the perfect guy. He was with his college sweetheart. They had two kids. He had no issue. He had none of the issues. Numbers, part of it was growing up in Hawaii. Um, oh, I thought it was from Kenya. That he, that, <laughs> I'm kidding. That I know. That the, that, the, that the average black man in America does not, we don't have that privilege. We don't have that privilege. We don't have that privilege of having absolutely nothing on our criminal record. I've never been, I have no criminal charges on my record. That does not change the fact that if you look up my record, I've been arrested hundreds of times. Okay, not hundreds, but tens. <laughs> Yeah. Like and, and with no charges, like there's nothing, there's nothing criminal I was doing. I was or I was arrested or harassed or anything else because I'm a black man in America. So let me go back to this legislation again. Kim Reynolds, Governor Kim Reynolds in Iowa, signing the bill that prevents uh, teachers from teaching critical race theory. Um, I don't know how many instructors or classrooms across the state were 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 you were doing that, but what happens now? What if a teacher says? No, my, my, my students need to know that. I mean, Des Moines, for example. Des Moines is the largest, by a factor of two, school district in the state. Mm-hmm. It's the most heavily uh, non-white district, mm-hmm. a majority non-white, mm-hmm. and also the poorest district. Uh, what if you've got teachers, black or white or whatever, whatever, uh, whatever background they've got, if they've got a passion for that, if they feel it's important, if the students feel it's important, if the students' parents feel it's important, and they decide to teach this against the will of the governor, what happens? Well, I mean, we had a superintendent that went out of his way to protect our students and protect our kids, and what happened to him? Well, uh, <laughs> Kim Reynolds' uh, hand-picked education board found a way to uh, give him more than a wrist slap. We'll mm-hmm. see what that amounts to in terms of uh, the eventual uh, outcome. But, yeah, Tom Absolutely. Mayer was hit pretty hard by that. It's, uh, it's, it's the same thing. It's, it's white supremacists making sure that white supremacy is the foremost in America. In politics, in education, in our medical, our health care, it's just making sure that white supremacy continues. So you think if teachers uh, do what they feel called to do and teach critical race theory, uh, they will have they will there will be retribution against them. Oh sure, they'll oh, be yes. they'll be fired perhaps. Uh, yeah. What if they have a supportive principal and a supportive superintendent? Then will they'll do whatever they need to do. Yeah, I mean, the state, the state, historically, the state, in Iowa at least, does not have a really big role to play in education. It's supposed to be a local, uh, local phenomenon. The, the local people elect the school board, and the school board manages the school district with minimal input and meddling from the state and the federal government. This is another step forward toward meddling. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe now that they've taken this step and, and basically said, you can't teach this, you know, even if it's something that you and your students and the entire district feel strongly about, maybe they'll go that extra step and actually take action against teachers or principals or superintendents who decide to uh, ignore that edict. Well, yeah. It, well, we, it's important to start with the fact that this is something that is being led by GOP um, governors in mainly red states. So you have to see that factor as well because you have to understand that they're all about hands off as long as you're doing what they want to do. Mm. Um, They were all hands off until it came to mask or not going to school and then it was a stepping in. So it's it's not about what they're doing, it's about controlling the narrative and that is their goal because that is white supremacy's goal. 
Well, and it's also a very corporate goal. If you look at the uh, some of the other things being done, for example, a city decides to pass a minimum wage ordinance and and require businesses to pay uh, 15, 15 bucks an hour or even ten bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. Boom! State legislature, governor, you know, Republican lawmakers come down against that. Uh, a city decides that it doesn't like to see all these plastic bags blowing in the wind, hanging up in trees. Um, takes it, you know, an action on behalf of the environment. State comes down and. It puts the kibosh on that. So yeah, it's it's a uh, it's control. It's control. It's control, and it's hypocrisy because you got on a water one one side of the mouth saying we support local control, and out of the other, taking action against any local initiative that goes against the corporate, um, you know, narrow racial construct that the legislature and governor seem to adhere to. That's because it's all the every time they say well. We don't believe in government control. We don't believe you have to put of white people at the end. <laughs> it's for real. It's really one of those things. We don't believe in government control of white people. We don't believe in um, the government taking control of our school of our schools, or or we don't believe in these things as long as the people that we're affecting are white people. They don't have any problem, and they never have, with government taking control or doing things that disenfranchise or marginalize people of color. Or for that's that, never been a big deal. Or, or poor people. Or poor people, or or, sm- or small businesses, small farmers. Sm- you know, it's 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 the uh, it's 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 also the corporate sponsors that, that well, help make their 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 political power possible. Right. That's not. I mean. Racism was born out of capitalism. Sure. So that's not a far reach. Like that's not the 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 point of capitalism was to solidify, or the point of racism was to solidify capitalism. Pasha, I really enjoyed talking with you. Really appreciate you coming on the program. Sorry we have so little time. Oh no problem. There's always I enjoy so coming. much to cover, <laughs> folks. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to be talking about Interdependence Day. What's that? Well. It's not exactly Independence Day, but it's close enough to justify the conversation. Again, Pasha Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. All right. Thank you very much. Back in a moment, folks, on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online, and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Klipsham has been doing this work for over 30 years on a wide variety of project types, specializing in super-insulated structures made from, wait for it, grain bins. Yup, with the right experience, tools, and creativity, so much is possible. View images of projects and learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. That's architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum again. This is Ed Fallon, your host. We're broadcasting from America's Heartland, Des Moines, Iowa. Thanks to our local business partners, including Architecture by Synthesis, 
where Mark Klipsham offers planning and design services for high-performance, low-maintenance homes and buildings. Mark specializes in environmentally friendly designs, including highly insulated structures made from grain bins. That's architecture by synthesis. Thanks also to Groovy Goods, Des Moines' one-stop hippie shop where everyone is welcome and no one is judged. Groovy Goods calls itself a tribe brought together by peace, love, and rock and roll. Learn more at groovygoods.com or just stop in at 23rd and University in Des Moines. So every year about this time, I get to thinking about independence versus interdependence. And I want to share with you the... um, the segment from the chapter of my book, Marcher Walker Pilgrim. This was uh, back in 2014. We walked through western Nebraska on July. We arrived on July 3rd in, in the little town of Culbertson, took the day off on July 4th, and were invited to march in the parade, which was pretty cool because even though Culbertson's a tiny town, everybody comes around, <laughs> comes around for, the, uh, for the parade. So I'll share that uh, section of my book with you and um, ask you to join me in thinking about independence versus interdependence. Culbertson, a town of 600, swells to several thousand people for its annual Independence Day celebration. We are thrilled to have been invited to join the parade. Some of us play instruments and sing, while others carry signs and a banner. Folks along the parade route seem genuinely receptive or at least politely amused, and we connect with our biggest audience since Los Angeles. After the parade, I immerse myself in Culbertson's holiday fun. I watch the horseshoe competition for a bit, then stumble on a luncheon to raise funds for the new library. I drop 10 bucks for a modest meal and grab a seat at one of the tables, striking up a conversation with a woman who introduces herself as Corky Krizik. She and her family live in McCook, and they saw us in the parade. Corky's got the usual questions about shoes and weather, and then she asks, have you lost much weight? Yeah, dropping 24 pounds in the first two months was one of the biggest surprises, I tell her. I rip through calories like a twister through a cornfield, and I'm craving meat like there's only one pig and one cow left on the entire planet. Well, says Corky, when you get to McCook tomorrow, you'll only be a few blocks from our place. Stop by, and I'll make you a big steak dinner. I thank Corky, then wander around for another couple hours, reveling in the nostalgia of all that's good and wholesome about America, family, food, fun, and a robust love of land and country. I think about the myriad ways in which everyone here, each of these several thousand people, need each other how their lives are woven together in so many essential ways. July 4th is not so much a celebration of America's independence as it is Americans' interdependence. Perhaps that little girl in the red dress over there, the one darting around the playground with her friends, will only overcome her learning disability with the after-school reading program at the new library. Perhaps that old farmer I saw tossing ringer after ringer at the horseshoe contest. Perhaps he had an accident last fall and was only able to get his crops in with the help of his neighbors. Perhaps the climate march wouldn't have even made it out of California without the kindness and support of hundreds of people. Yeah, I'm certain of that. Sure, Americans should celebrate winning our independence from England, even though things probably would have turned out about the same whether we'd fought a war 
or followed the more diplomatic path of our Canadian neighbors. Sure, we should celebrate the fact that over the course of 238 years, no foreign power has come close to invading our country and subjugating our people. But meanwhile, we've bought the notion that independence means being able to do whatever we do whenever we want without anybody's help. The percentage of Americans who now live by themselves has swelled from 5% in the 1920s to 27% today. That's not independence. That's isolation. That's the face of loneliness. And though it may be hard to measure, those who study these sorts of things claim loneliness has increased dramatically over the past 20 years. On July 4th, we celebrate our independence from foreign powers. The rest of the year, we celebrate our independence from each other. Meanwhile, we have failed to notice that America has succumbed to a gradual invasion, a more insidious subjugation. Through the clever manipulation of laws by greedy men, yeah, again, they're mostly men, and our own complacency, National chains and big corporations now dominate our economy. It's increasingly difficult, almost impossible in some professions, for hardworking men and women to harness their talent, their energy, and their passion to realize the American dream and earn a living as a farmer, a business owner, or an entrepreneur, not beholden to some distant corporate overlord. While we cheer the parade vehicles made in Japan, and we wave our tiny flags made in China, and we catch little pieces of candy made in Mexico, the wealthy and powerful quietly consolidate their control over our lives. They do this in large part through buying off America's political leadership, both Democratic and Republican, and solidifying their control of our lives through manipulative advertising we fail to notice that this unholy alliance of corporate and government power has eviscerated antitrust laws, gutted protections against the formation of monopolies, allowed foreign corporations to buy farmland, and enacted trade treaties that ship our jobs and factories overseas. When the powerful interests that benefit from these laws run aground because of their own greed and stupidity, our politicians simply provide taxpayer finance bailouts to banks, car manufacturers, and other industry giants deemed too big to fail. The way out of this loss of independence is through recognizing, celebrating, and building upon our essential interdependence. Buying our food from farmers we know and trust, supporting businesses owned by people who live and work in our town, using cash instead of credit cards, since the small business owner in the middle gets dinged badly by the credit card company, doing more with barter. The long road that led us from America's former independence to our current dependence and the difficult path out of dependence through interdependence is our only hope if we are to win both the race against climate change and the struggle to regain our democracy. That's from chapter 24 of my book, Marcher, Walker, Pilgrim, about the Great March for Climate Action, my memoir from that march of uh, 3,100 miles back in 2014. And I remember the day we were, 
we uh, left on July 5th when we left uh, uh, left Culbertson for McCook, a 21-mile march. Well, the temperature hit 100 degrees that day. <laughs> it was um, actually 101. Uh, it was a hot day. <laughs> and uh, yes, Corky Kresic did indeed come through with a steak dinner for me. That was uh, one of those moments that I truly treasure and remember from that march. She also came through with um, two pieces of key lime pie. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I could never eat like that today, but back then when you're burning, I don't know how many calories, it's amazing what you can eat. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's a necessary thing when you're burning calories like that. Anyway, folks, um, that's my spiel on Independence Day, or as I prefer to call it, Interdependence Day. When we come back from a short break, Kathy Burns of Birds and Bees Urban Farm is going to join us, and we're going to be talking about fall gardening. What you say, fall gardening in early July? Well, you know what? We're really only about three or four weeks from when you should be planting your fall garden. And if we're only three or four weeks away from that, now's the time to start planning your fall garden. Back in a minute with you, Ed Fallon here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. With over 5,000 items to choose from, you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Thanks for being with us today, folks. And thanks to the local businesses in the Des Moines and Iowa area that helped make this program possible, including Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's my grocery store. It's also a fantastic cafe. It's open seven days a week. They've got a floral service as well and a catering service. And you can now order your groceries online. And the Gateway team will deliver them to you curbside. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. I'm going to welcome Kathy Burns to the program. Kathy with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And uh, the day that we are recording this program, it is 100 degrees outside. I will add that it's only 80 degrees inside without the air conditioning on, and it's pretty darn comfortable. Okay. Yeah. But believe it or not, first week of July is now the time to start thinking about your fall garden. Well, last uh, winter was the time to think about this year's <laughs> fall garden, That's but, right. but we've already done that, and if you're a little behind the eight ball on it, you can still plant a fall garden um, with the right forethought. So um, really, August 1st is fall garden, the start of the fall garden season. That's when you start planting. Yeah. Yep. Uh -huh. Well, and you really don't want to, well, it depends on what you're planting, but you don't want to go too late. No, no, because, you know, uh, you won't get the produce that you want. The plants yeah. won't have time to develop. Um, 
So something to think about that doesn't involve the actual planting is winding down the summer garden plots that you want to use for your fall garden. Are you going to save seed from any of those? You know, we have just let our green beans, the first crop of green beans that we had, uh, we've gotten some good pickings and we're, let them, we let, we're letting them go to seed. Uh, we've got a few other plots of green beans, so we're going to keep picking those. Hmm. Peas, we're letting go to seed. Um, what lettuce and some different things so yeah because the when you have a when you have a crop that does really well like provider bean and we got that seed I believe from seed savers yes. originally but now we've been saving every year we save provider bean seeds and that uh, that's um that's a great bean it does really really well and now we discovered that uh, Svensson Swedish that's the actual name uh, peas yes. Snap peas are really a high producer, and so we're going to save those seed as well. Mm-hmm. But the problem for fall gardening is it uh, takes up uh, a, it takes up that particular bed or space in your bed for mm-hmm. longer than it would if you if you're just harvesting and then being done with it. Mm-hmm. You got to let it sit there and finish uh, finish ripening. Well, when you're done with your fall uh, with your summer beds um, and you want to get them ready, so starting right now is the time to start getting some of those ready. Um, you need to think first about what you're going to plant so you know what space you need. And one of the things to think about is how to rotate crops within your space. Uh, that's always a challenge for us because we grow so intensively and On a, small lot, area, a yeah. lot, of, lot of different varieties of crops. So mm-hmm. um, what you know, consult a seed, a chart for um, crop rotation. We can't go through that in this program today. Yeah. But, um, for instance, you're not going to plant a tomato this time of year. But if you've had a tomato somewhere, beans might be a good follow-up. Right. Because yeah. it fixes nitrate back into the soil. I don't, I've never seen this in print anywhere, but we do a really good rotation of garlic and turnips. And mm-hmm. it's all within one year. So when we harvest the garlic in July, we'll end up, we'll plant the, uh, we'll, we'll give it a two or three week break. <laughs> and then we'll, harv- then we'll plant the uh, turnips in that same bed first week of August, and it always leads to a fantastic turnip harvest. We do have, we have too many turnips. We've talked no, about that too, too many, many times. We have, we have just the right amount of turnips. What do you, what do you mean? Well, you also want to think <laughs> ahead to next spring when you're thinking about what you're going to plant in the fall. Because again, if you're going to rotate crops, and you should, uh, whatever you plant there, you planted something this uh, for the spring crop this year, it's gone through the summer, you're going to clear that bed, you're going to prepare it. You're going to plant something for fall. And then what comes next spring? So you want to be thinking about a year ahead. So what are your, Kathy, what are your favorite uh, your fall, your favorite fall garden crops other than turnips? More carrots. <laughs> I, carrots I, 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 yeah. like, I like a lot of carrots because when we make stews and roasts, they always have to go in. That's now, just a good flavor. Now what I find is the, the turnip crop actually does better in the fall than in the spring. But carrots, mm-hmm. they do okay in the fall. They just never get to be quite as big as the spring turnips, mm-hmm. in my experience. Something we did well last year in the fall that did not do well in the spring was fennel. And yeah, that's uh, right. that, that was a fun crop. That was we, we like to try a number of new things every year. And fennel was a fun new crop for us to try. The spring crop was a little lame, but we got some nice fennel seeds. It was quite lame. It was very lame. 
but I saved, <laughs> but I saved some seed from that sum, right. that That's summer right. or spring and summer crop, and I love to grind up dried fennel seed and put it in marinara. In terms of roots, the other thing we do in the fall that works pretty well, again, not as well as in the spring, but pretty well, is beets. I thought you were going to say turnips again. No, no. <laughs> we're, down, we're over turnips now. The beets do pretty well also. Mm-hmm. And then there's all the green leafy crops you can grow. Yeah. Did you know you can do your greens again in the fall? It's, now you do. It's a great. It's great. Um, we are just finishing our our greens lettuce um, from from the spring planting. Uh, we had a lot of spinach too, so we're excited because we'll get another crop of salad in the fall. Yeah, lettuce, spinach, arugula, um, and you can also do radishes. Radishes again. But again, ra- radishes you have to plant those every two weeks, in my experience, because when they come do they're ready they're ready and and you got to be ready for them and then they're, then they're done so if you want another crop of radishes you'll have to have planted you know two weeks from the first one and, and that's green, green beans another yeah, oh yeah green, green beans. beans yeah sure we yeah. plant how many times of green beans a year how many different three or four this year it'll probably be three because again one of our beds is tied up with a crop that we're saving seed from the the, the collard and swiss chard bed is also was it was intended to be another bean planting, but it's going to just stick with uh, saving seed for us and providing us some greens. The reason you want to think about what you're going to plant now is that you need to, if you need seed or um, not too many seedling things going into fall, but if you need seed, you you need to start looking for that now because a lot of places run out of seed through the year, especially hmm. since the derecho, since the pandemic. Yeah. And uh, the derecho was the big storm we had here in Iowa that, that was strange and, and amazing Historic. and scary and really, really wiped out a lot of stuff. Yeah. We don't save carrots or beets because they're... Seeds. Uh, seeds, rather. They're biennials. Um, we, we have tried saving turnips. We need to try that again. We just didn't have enough density of population to really have the seed work well. But, um, but you know, the... Uh, the cool thing about these root crops is once they're done, you know, in the summertime when you harvest root crops in June, July, you know, whether it's potatoes or, or beets, turnips, uh, carrots, whatever, it's hard. It's hard. You get really, you really, there's no place to store them where it's cold enough. Unless you happen to use an air-conditioned space that gets cold enough to store those. Um, we don't, we, as Ed mentioned, we try not to use our air conditioning and our cellar just doesn't get cool enough to we, store root And we, we have found that the ground itself is too warm in August, mm-hmm. July, August, September. But once you hit October, November, um, mm-hmm. we, 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 bury, we bury stuff three feet deep. We're talking about vegetables. Vegetables, yeah, no, no. <laughs> we bury vegetables and our enemies. Don't cross us. Uh, <laughs> our enemies, we bury six feet deep, no. Uh, <laughs> we bury them three feet deep in dirt and straw and they, you know, we harvest those in March, and they're fine. They're in good shape. Beets, carrots, um, <clears throat> potatoes, turnips, they all do just quite fine in the earth. They did. Once it cools down enough. You know? it's, it's, they love it there, and they feel, um, well, some people, well, speaking of potatoes, some people leave their potatoes in the ground. Um, I, we've not tried that, but we well, need the ground for other things. Yeah, until it gets, when it gets to be, um, you know, when, when the, beyond a light freeze, when it starts freezing hard, then your potatoes will be in trouble if they're, you know, if they're still in the ground. But. We want to talk about preparing your uh, garden beds. 
for receiving the seed <laughs> for <laughs> your fall planting. And uh, of course, you, you, you've cleared out the crop that was there before, unless you're going to leave something there and weave in some other crops around it. Uh, but uh, at, nourishing your soil is one of the main tasks and you could yeah. if you're not used to doing that step start sourcing now where you're going to get compost if you don't make it yourself where you might get manure which we yeah. have a lot of availability to there's a stable um, nearby and we've um we hauled last year 180 uh five gallon buckets uh, in the prius <laughs> we did without making a bad without making a mess we were, we were pretty careful it was nine trips 20 buckets per trip yep and it was well worth it. It really helped enrich the, the garden. The, the spring when I would dig a hole to plant a tomato or something, the uh, the worm activity in that <laughs> spot between the compost that we, we talk make, about such cool things. Between the compost we make, the manure, and just the soil itself just being a great place to live, the the worms and whatnot were just thick and uh, and feeding heavily. The worms are so great, and the whatnot are even. The whatnot. Better. My favorite insect is the whatnot. <laughs> we should invent it. <laughs> An insect called that. Um, so your compost, your manure, and by the way, the folks at the stable are happy that we're taking some off their hands, so they have less to haul away. That may be the case with most stables. We yeah. we do we do acknowledge a couple of challenges in doing a fall garden. It takes more time. Uh, there's a lot of reward to that, but it definitely takes time, and you're thinking ahead. I think the biggest challenge mm. is watering because mm -hmm. again, we're talking August. We usually plant between August first and August. We, I say August 1st and the start of the uh, Iowa State Fair. Uh, Iowa State Fair. So the first week of August. And uh, the biggest challenge, I think, is watering because it's hot. Uh, the plants are vulnerable. Or the seeds, the, the seeds mm -hmm. need moisture, mm -hmm. and that dries out pretty quick. So I say when, you, when you're first getting started, you're looking at watering. And it's a very light watering, so it's not a lot of work. It's a quick watering in the morning and probably in the evening. Uh, just until they really get themselves established. Um, and exacerbated now by the fact that we're in a severe drought. So, mm. um, but again, we think that watering some vegetables in your yard that you're eating is saving food from having to be transported from far, far away, which is worsening climate change because of all the fossil fuels burned mm. and the carbons emitted yeah. from that process. So yeah. we're, we're big fans of growing your food and watering. Now the other thing you, this is maybe a little bit premature, but the other fall planting thing you ought to think about, well two, um, back to garlic. Uh, garlic is best planted in, in Iowa at least, again I can't say for other parts of the country, but in Iowa, uh, very last week of October or possibly the first week of November, uh, with climate change now, we're finding that it makes more sense to plant garlic in late November. And again, we plant uh, we plant 120 of our best cloves, 60 on either side of the sidewalk. So we've got this uh, this this um, gauntlet of uh, of, of okay. garlic that prevents any vampire from accessing our front door. It, it, it's worked so far. Not a single vampire has visited. We've had bats. Our residence. We've had bats, but none of them. Obviously, sucked our blood. It proves that bats are, are not, those were not vampires, as a, as a friend of ours had. But even before garlic, in mid-October, again, this is Des Moines, Iowa, so adjust accordingly depending on where you live, but in mid-October, we plant our cold frames. And that's why we have salad. Well, we actually harvested one salad in January and one in February, and then starting March 6th, 
a salad every day through early July. We are well saladed. <laughs> Very saladed. I want to note, talking about the garlic, that we plant a hard neck variety, which, sure. which works better for this climate, this, area, this growing yeah. zone, and um, also helps you rotate that around. So yeah, think fall garden. It's so worth it. You will be very happy with whatever you're able to get. Some things, again, grow better in the fall than in the spring. Hey, thanks, Kathy, for joining us. Uh, Kathy Burns, folks, with Birds and Bees Urban Farm. Uh, thanks to our other guests, Mark Clipsham and Pasha Morgan. Thanks also to our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe, Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Westrom Optometry, and Groovy Goods. And thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Bold Iowa and Birds and Bees Urban Farm. And thanks to our amazing production squad of Sherry Herdina and Kathy Burns. Also to the rest of our team, Forrest Detterman and Charles Goldman. Again, check this program out on podcast on the Fallon Forum website, and we'll see you again next week.